Revelation chapter 5 tonight, the wonder and worship of heaven, part 2. Revelation chapter 5. We want to look at four primary things tonight out of this chapter. We want to look at the scroll, we want to look at the search, we want to look at the Savior, and we want to look at the singing tonight. In contrast to last week, Revelation chapter 4, when John was caught up to heaven and to see this throne room, his eyes were transfixed upon the person on the throne. And 11 times in those 14 verses, John mentions the throne of God and the person on the throne. Tonight, in the first 10 verses, this scroll is mentioned eight times. It again has sort of transfixed John's attention. You'll see there in verse 1, that I saw in the right hand, the, the hand of authority, if you will, and power of the one who was seated on the throne, a scroll written on the front and back, quite an extensive scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals, sealed to authenticate, sealed speaking of ownership, sealed speaking again of authority and power, and seven seals being the sign of completion or perfection. What is this scroll? Let's talk about that for a moment. Well, it speaks to us about several things. One, it is the repository of the details of how God is going to end the world as we know it. As we see in chapter 6 through chapter 19 of Revelation, all that information is contained in this scroll, how God is going to bring, if you will, the reign of evil, the reign of sin, the reign of death, the reign of man to an end, and where he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth. It's all those details. It is also, though, speaking to us and affirming to us about the Lamb's right and authority to rule on the earth. It's going to go into that as we continue our study of Revelation. That's also contained in the scroll. Not only the details of how God's going to do it and what he's going to do, but it is affirming that the Lamb is the one who has the authority to do it. In fact, I'll throw a verse out there now that we'll probably come back around to at some point tonight, and it's one that you should keep in mind as you study the book of Revelation. It's John chapter 5, verse 22, the gospel of John chapter 5, verse 22, where John writes, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. See, the Son of God is the one who's going to judge the world one day. And that's exactly what you see transpiring here throughout the book of Revelation. One more thing the scroll speaks to us about, and that is it, it can also be described, and I've shared this with you before if you've done a study with me through the book of Revelation, as the title deed of the planet Earth and that Jesus Christ is taking, if you will, the title deed back. So let's go back just for a moment to the book of Genesis, and let's be reminded how this all got started. 
It was God's intent when he created Adam and Eve and put mankind on the earth that they would have dominion. You see that in the book of Genesis. God always intended for mankind to rule and reign on the earth as his co-regents, if you will. When sin entered in, man gave up not only the right to rule the earth, but no longer had the ability or capability to rule the earth as God intended. And one swooped in at that point to sort of temporarily take that title deed for a few thousand years, if you will, under, obviously, always, the sovereign control of God. And that character we know as the devil or as Satan. That is why the Bible correctly refers to him now as the God of what? This world. He is now called the prince and power of the air. That's why he could take Jesus up to that high place when he tempted him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you will bow down to me and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms because they are his to give. But Jesus no longer is interested in an earthly kingdom. His kingdom has always been about ruling and reigning an eternal kingdom, you see. So also what this scroll is, if you will, is Jesus Christ, the transfer of a title, where Jesus Christ is now taking this back and going to restore and redeem mankind so that as we've already seen in the book of Revelation, we can once again go back to the intent that God had in the Garden of Eden, which was for us to rule and reign on the earth. In fact, we're going to see that even a little bit later. So that's the scroll. But let's also then look at verse 2 that begins the search. I saw, John says, a powerful angel. Can I say, I, I, I don't know when I heard of a weak angel, <laughs> unless this angel was just like really built. I, I don't know. He saw a very powerful angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy who is deserving, literally, who has the weight, if you will, to take on this responsibility and to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who's worthy? Who has the ability? Who has the power? Who has the authority? Who has the sufficiency to be able to put down the reign of sin and death and hell and evil once and for all. Who can do that? Who has the ability not only to put down the reign of evil for all time, but to set up righteousness in its place forever and ever? Who's worthy to do that? So a search is commenced, we read in verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth in the underworld as we know it, was able to open the scroll or look into it, even look at it, much less begin to crack it open and deliver the contents of this scroll. Think about that. 
I don't know how quickly this search in John's mind or spirit went on, but I think it went on for a little bit of time. We know that because of John's reaction to this in verse 4. He says, I began weeping bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And you and I hopefully can identify with his emotion at this point. I mean, think about it. What if you were sitting here tonight? Obviously, if you were sitting here tonight, then you probably wouldn't have this belief, but make believe you do. You're sitting here tonight in the world, in the state it's in, and you have no hope that anything will ever change. You have no assurance, no promise that anything will ever get better. In fact, the only thing you have is that it's just going to get worse. And that evil and sin and death and all of that is just going to continue on without any stop. No one can change it. No one can come in and intervene and and make things right. No one can vindicate the righteous. No no one can bring justice to those who deserve justice. No one, nothing. How would you feel in that case? Well, in a sense, we get a glimpse into that even as Christians when we look at those who have no belief in God and do not believe the Bible. They, they, they have no hope. They, the only thing they have, at least that they think they're sure of, is their life right now. That's it. They have no assurance of what is going to happen after they die. They have no assurance of things getting better at some point. They obviously do not believe in an eternity, and especially an eternity of righteousness forever and ever. They have nothing like that. And that's why they act the way they do. And that's why they turn to the coping mechanisms that they do. And that's why we can understand even John at this point, weeping, sobs, literally audible sobs. He's heartbroken because he's like, if no one is found in the universe that can step up and begin to open this scroll, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. Then, in the middle of this search, verse 5, one of the elders, one of the worship leaders of heaven says to me, stop weeping. There is no need for sorrow. There is a solution, and the solution is now the Savior. We move from the scroll to the search to the Savior of us all. And The elder says, look, look at who this is. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Look. The first thing that the elder establishes about our Savior is that he fulfills Old Testament prophecy, that he fulfills 
all that the scriptures said about the coming of the Messiah and what the Messiah would bring in. And let me share just a couple of those verses that back up what the elder says here in Revelation to the Apostle John. I'm reading now from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, he shoulders responsibility and is called extraordinary strategist, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Listen to verse 7. His dominion will be vast, and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The Lord's intense devotion to his people will accomplish this. The first thing John is told about this Savior is that he's the Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament pointed to and talked about and all the prophecies were about. He has the right to rule because the Old Testament predicted he would be a descendant of David. He would come out of the tribe of Judah and he would sit on his father's throne, David. But unlike David, who only ruled very temporarily, his rule will be everlasting forever and ever. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, I want you to notice about our Savior is this. Very important. Notice it says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Past tense. The great victory over the powers of evil has already taken place. It happened when he died on the cross and was resurrected. That's when the victory took place. I, I want to make a very important point, and I, I want us to begin tonight to absorb it. I want us to begin tonight to apply this principle to our life. He got this victory not through the claws of a lion, but through the surrender of a lamb that was slaughtered. Think about that. He did not achieve the victory as the lion. He achieved the victory as the slaughtered lamb who surrendered himself. Now, the reason I say that we as Christians need to grasp that principle and understand it is because there are even many Christians today who think that we will achieve victory on this earth by being lions. Nope. We will achieve victory the same way our Savior achieved victory, through surrender to God. That's how we achieve victory. Go back with me in your mind to that night when they arrested Jesus in the garden. And who was ready to be the lion? Pulled out his sword. Peter chopped off Malchus's ear. And what did Jesus turn and say to Peter? Peter, 
put your sword back. This victory is not going to be achieved by you taking out your swords. This victory is going to be achieved by me hanging on that cross and dying for the sins of the world. That's how this victory is going to be achieved. And so Jesus took that ear and stuck it back on that man's head and healed him and allowed those Roman soldiers to arrest him. They had no power over him. He's the Lord of glory. He surrendered himself. Earlier that night, he says to his father, not my will, but yours be done. And if this is the way to do it, I surrender. And in surrender to God is our victory. We need to get that. Because that's one of the things that John is even realizing here at the very end. He has conquered. What he's going to do as the lion when he comes back to earth is simply the mop-up operation, if you will. It, it's the conclusion. It's the consummation of the victory that he already achieved on the cross when he died and surrendered himself for us. Has conquered. Thus he can open the scroll and its seven seals because he surrendered himself. He has the right. He has the authority. He has the power to be able to open these seals and to begin to judge the earth. Then I saw standing in the middle of the throne and of the four living creatures, verse 6, and in the middle of the elders, a lamb appeared to have been killed, but notice, this lamb was not like any other lamb. This lamb is a powerful conquering lamb. This lamb had seven horns. Horns were symbols of power. Seven again, the number of perfection and completion. He is the almighty God as the lamb. And he also has seven eyes. He is the omniscient God who knows all and sees all, and nothing escapes his vision. He also sends the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God, out into all the earth, the omnipresent God. God of very God. By the way, the reason he's sending the Spirit of God out even before the tribulation begins is because the Spirit of God will be on earth, not through the church, but he will be here on earth. That's how people are going to come to salvation even during the tribulation period. Then he came. What a powerful, overwhelming picture here of Christ. Then he came, verse 7, and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne, the Father. I mean, what a scene. And now the Lamb will execute his divinely mandated plan and bring history to a close. Now, I want to go back up to two words. Those words has conquered in verse 5. I want to remind us that this same word is used by Jesus in John 16.33 when he says to his followers, do not 
be troubled. You will have trouble and suffering in this world, but be of good courage or be of good cheer. I have overcome, I have conquered the world. See, even then, Jesus says to his followers, I've already conquered because he, he knew of his impending victory. And then keep your finger in Revelation 5. We'll come right back, but just turn back to just a few books, to the book of 1 John. Here's a great verse for us that follows on the heels of John 16, 33. John, 1 John 5, 5. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world? Same word used in John 16, 33. Same word used in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. Who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Then guess what? You've conquered the world. If the world gets the best of you, it's not because it had to. It's because you gave the world a power over you or in you that the world does not have because through our Lord Jesus Christ, he's already given us that victory and he wants us to live in that victory over the world, over the flesh, and over the devil and over every other force in the universe because he is the lamb who is worthy to open the seals and to open the scroll. The Savior the Savior like no other Savior, who did not achieve his victory through the claws of the lion, but through his surrender as the Lamb of God led to a slaughter who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let's get to the singing. This is, this is the response. And this is so important because our whole Christian life is about responding to God. That's what faith is. If someone was to even ask me, what's the simplest, most direct definition of faith? It is simply positively responding to God all the time. That's what faith is. Positively responding to God. Because faith is a response to God revealing himself to us. So there's always that back and forth, give and take. God is always revealing more of himself, and we should then be responding in, in like manner. That's why worship needs to be so central to everything we do as a Christian because worship is all about response. It's one of the things that our worship leader, Nicole, has tried to teach us over the years and why it's so vital and why it's so essential and why it's so important. It's learning to respond to God. And guess what? Oh, there's a big response coming in heaven now. Because everybody up there, including you and I, who will be there that day, is thrilled to know that there is one who's worthy. There, there is one who can finally set the record straight and bring evil and bring sin and bring death and bring all of that to an end once and for all. There is one who can set up his everlasting kingdom in which righteousness will dwell forever and ever. There is one, and he is the Lamb of God, our Savior. So when he comes, the Bible says, and takes the scroll, the four living creatures, verse 8, and the 24 elders 
threw themselves to the ground before the Lamb. Each of them had a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What's that all about? And why is that included at this point? Because what is about to happen by Jesus cracking open those seals and opening the judgments up is he's also responding to the prayers of the saints, saying to him, God, how long? How long before you come, God? How long before you come and, and vindicate yourself on this earth? How long before you come and vindicate us who follow you on this earth, Lord? How long before your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is, it is in heaven? How long? These actions that the lamb is about to take is in response to the prayers of the saints. So, my friends, keep on praying because God responds to prayer. They were singing a new song. And I want to direct your attention to the word singing here. This is important for us to get, and we're getting it as a church, but we need to keep growing in it. The word singing here speaks about emotional praise from a grateful heart. See, God is an emotional being. And when God wants us to praise him. God hopes that we will get a little emotional about it because we have a heart that is filled with gratitude and appreciation for who he is and for what we have through him and in him. And we're getting there, but we just need to keep on going. I want our church to be filled with a group of people that sing, not just sing, but who have an emotional response of praise to God because of a full and grateful heart. And they're singing a new song. Not that there's anything wrong with older songs, but it is a reminder to us that new songs always need to be coming in God's people because they are inspired by the new things that God is continually doing, and God is always doing something new. Therefore, our worship should never be stagnant. Our worship should always be growing. There should be new songs that are written and new songs that are sung because our worship needs to be like our spiritual growth. It cannot get stagnant. We cannot just sing the old songs over and over again. We've got to sing some new ones every once in a while too because we are writing and we are singing about the new things that God is doing in our midst just as he's doing here in heaven. These celestial beings are filled with praise that the opening of the seals are about to take place. And they say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Stop there. Let's please stop. One of the criticisms of our faith is that we are intolerant and not inclusive. And all I can say to you is the Bible doesn't say that about our God. The Bible says that in heaven, there will literally be people from every tribe, language, people, and nation group around the world. It's not that God is not inclusive. It's that anyone can come to him. God so loved the world. It's just you got to come God's way. And any human being, 
that is willing to surrender their life to Jesus Christ and believe in him can be saved. That's the only thing God says. I'll save anyone. There's no one beyond my salvation, but you got to do it my way, just as we talked about Sunday. Can't come to God the way you want to. Got to come to God as he has already prescribed it. But there's going to be people up there from everywhere. The universal praise of God one day. And then notice this. It is part of his plan to have appointed them as kingdom and priests to serve our God. What are we going to do in the kingdom? Serve, serve in worship, serve in witness, serve in work. And notice, and they will reign on the, what? Earth. People ask me, why do you believe in a literal earthly kingdom before we get to the eternal kingdom, if you will? Because the Bible teaches it. You and I will also reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years during what the Bible calls the millennial kingdom. That's part of our future. And we're going to be part of it as well. Let's move on. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. This is incredible. The, the number of angels is innumerable. John, John is using language that's just piling up like there's just bazillions of angels. He, he can't even count them. There are so many of them. All of them who are singing in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. This is an incredible scene as all the uncountable hosts of heaven surround the throne and sing their adoration of the true glory of Christ, according him the honor that he is due. Now, verse 13. Every created being in the universe joins the angelic host to praise God and the Lamb together. Not just human beings. Don't miss this. Notice what verse 13 teaches us. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them is singing. That's not just us. One day, God is literally going to open the mouths of all the animals. And the animals are literally going to praise. I mean, yes, they praise him now in a way. The singing of birds, even the sounds that the whales make and all of that, in, in a way, they are praising God. But one day, God, I think, is going to allow the animal to go back to that place, at least, at least for a moment, we know for sure, like the serpent was able to do in the garden where he could speak to Eve. And we're going to hear every creature, not just every human being, every creature in the universe bring praise to God. What? Is that going to sound like an amazing... Again, that's why heaven is not only going to be a place where we're going to see things we could never even imagine seeing. We're going to hear things we never could imagine hearing. And John says, I heard every creature singing 
to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and ruling power forever and ever. And the four living creatures were saying, amen. And the elders threw themselves to the ground and notice the very last word of chapter five, worship. This is a very important word here when we're talking about the worship and wonder of heaven. This word speaks about physical gestures of adoration. Let me speak to that for a moment. Yes, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind. Yes. But many times Christians just devote their worship of God to an intellectual, analytical level. No, it can't stop there. That's got to be part of it. But God created us with these bodies and with everything in us. And God wants us as his people to get to a point where like them, we literally uh, physically get into worship. And where every part of us inside and outside is literally pouring ourselves out to adore the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That's why you see in Revelation them throwing themselves to the ground and, and bowing down and all that. That's part of worship. It, it's being so overwhelmed by the goodness and greatness and glory of God that we are just overwhelmed. We don't care what anybody thinks. We, don't, we are just there to literally pay our, our adoration to God in some way by singing out, by lifting our hands, by, by whatever gesture it is, but it is, it's physical. It's physical. And as we come now to a time where we're going to take a moment and worship again, I want us to think about this before we enter into this time of worship. Those folks in heaven where we're going to be one day, we're worshiping him because he was the lamb who was killed. He was slain. He was slaughtered. For us. And I want us to think about that tonight as we come to worship our lamb that was slaughtered. That he was the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. Holy. And he was willing out of his great love for each of us to take upon himself every sin, every evil deed, every evil thought, everything that we will ever do that does not meet to God's standard. He was willing to take that on himself and feel the full wrath of God upon his holy body so that we never had to, so that one day we could stand in that great throng of the throne room of heaven and be able to lift up our voices for all of eternity and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for what I get to look forward to forever and ever. Thank you that I never have to worry about paying the penalty for my own sin because you did it for me. 
Thank you that I never have to worry about dying because death is simply my entrance into your, your presence, God. Thank you that I have something wonderful to look forward to after this great, blessed earthly life that you've given me. I get to live forever in your presence with you and with all the saints of God and all the angels of all time. Thank you, God. So could we stand tonight? And could we end our time by worshiping our Lord, our Lamb, the one that gave us all, gave us his all, and that we have it all because of him tonight.